and welcome to episode 27 of Retro Game Audio. My name's Patrick. And I'm Steve. And what are we talking about today, Steve? Well, today we're going to talk about the soundtrack to Gimmick and the sound expansion that it uses, which is known as the Sunsoft 5B. Yes, we are very excited to talk about this today. Uh, This is a soundtrack that we're both very fond of. Yeah, it's actually, yeah, definitely one of my top soundtracks, I'd have to say. Yeah, absolutely. And so for this episode, we'll follow the usual format of talking about the sound capabilities of the sound chip, which in this case is the Sunsoft 5B, followed by a listen-through of the gimmick soundtrack. But first, let's talk a little bit about the game itself. So Gimmick is a late jump-and-run platformer for the NES. It first came out for the Nintendo Famicom in January of 1992, and it had plans for an international release later that year. However, plans for a release in the US were dropped, and it only made it over to the Scandinavian region of Europe in small amounts. It was retitled Mr. Gimmick, and that came out in May of 1993. Yeah, and our friend Stefan uh, interviewed the director of Gimmick, Tomomi Sakai, and learned that the European title of Mr. Gimmick doesn't uh, actually make much sense then you know he doesn't think it's appropriate oh yeah (laughs) Yeah, i guess i mean i guess it doesn't make sense because there isn't actually a mr gimmick per se (laughs) because like the character you play actually isn't named gimmick you know yeah yeah you play as a character named yumetaro but his name is never actually mentioned in game so i'd imagine that the european market tried to take advantage of that sort of ambiguity like you know they were thinking mr gimmick sounds more like it could be the name of a video game or a cartoon character like that's, that's something you can sell like, oh, here's Mr. Gimmick, mm-hmm. you know, rather than just a game that's called Gimmick, because that's kind of abstract and weird. Yeah, yeah, that makes absolute sense. But speaking of which, why is it called Gimmick at all? What is it referring to? Well, you'll want to keep your eyes peeled for the next installment of Stefan's ongoing History of Sunsoft project, which you can find on VGArc.org. Uh, his full interview with Tomomi Sakai uh, isn't public yet, but um, that stuff will all be up eventually. And I believe the article that'll include Gimmick itself should be covered fairly soon. Oh, that's great. Um, but not to spoil giveaway too much from that, one of his questions was about the title, and uh, the answer was kind of confusing. Like, as I recall, I think it had something to do with the transition into the, like where the game takes place like in the dream space sort of like like the drawer like i always just thought it takes place in a drawer because he kind of <laughs> jumps into the drawer i don't know <laughs> well it's like there's like that portal that opens up in the yeah. like in the introduction and like yeah you know i think maybe something got lost in translation or i you know i it was a little confusing what i read and maybe i'm misremembering a little bit too but it, it like i i walked with the impression that like the gimmick isn't referring to the gameplay gimmick it's not talking about a mechanic it's like the space, like the the transition to Dreamland, is gimmick. So, uh, you know, you can yeah. you can uh, <laughs> interpret that however you would like, because it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the gameplay. This is a game with excellent graphics and audio. Like the graphics are actually underrated. I don't think anyone really talks about how good the graphics are for this game. The, the mm-hmm. backgrounds, the scenes, everything is really great. It features lots of colorful environments and cute enemy designs, which are kind of the hallmark of this particular studio at this particular time. But the game itself is anything but friendly. Oh, yeah. So uh, Gimmick has a reputation for being a very challenging game, and this was actually reflected in the marketing for it. There were ads that used a sort of catchphrase, which translated to um, not nearly as nice as it looks. 
referring specifically to the difficulty of it. Yeah, and I think that's spot on. Yeah. And Sunsoft was known for advertising the difficulty of their games, but it didn't always come from a place of consistency. Uh, In the case of Fester's Quest, which is a notoriously difficult NES game, the lead designer of that game basically just admitted to screwing up. (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty great story. Yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes, uh, but the the short version is that the game emitted stuff like a password system completely by accident. Like, they just didn't even think of it. So it was only as hard as it was due to some design oversights, and the developers themselves thought it was too hard. Um, But to try and save face, like, they advertised Fester's Quest as a difficult game, you know, sort of hoping that the game's flaws would seem intended, perhaps. But I think it's safe to say in the case of Gimmick, they knew exactly what they were doing, unlike with Uncle Fester here. Yeah. Uh, none of the challenge seems like an accident uh, because it's very polished. Everything's on purpose. Yeah. So this is the part where, you know, I definitely like to defend the difficulty of Gimmick a bit because I want to stress that it's actually a very, very good game for the Famicom. Like for me, this is in top five NES games material. Yeah, I, I, I'd say that's a fair assessment. I'd probably put it in my top 10, but it's still not like anywhere near the bottom. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the game is hard, but it's a very tightly crafted experience that the developers gave us. Um, it's like even though you might call it a jump and run platformer or, or maybe an action platformer since you do have some attacks, I also like to think of it as a like kind of a puzzle platformer, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's a good description. Yeah, because like the way I, I sort of look at it is like, if you compare it to something like Super Mario Brothers 3, if you mess up in that game, you generally know what you did wrong. It's kind of like, oops, I just fell short on that jump or I walked into that enemy, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but Gimmick has a few parts where you'll be looking at the screen and you're just going to find yourself wondering, like, how the hell am I supposed to do that? Like, you just <laughs> you don't even, like, understand, like, what the game is asking you to do. And you sort of have yeah. to puzzle out what the game's physics will actually allow. It's really cool. Yeah, and the trickiest parts of the game are actually the gateway to the good ending, which we should talk about. Gimmick gives you unlimited continues, but to get the good ending, you have to not use any of those continues, of course, right? And you have to find all the secret areas before getting to the true final stage. Yeah, and this is why I'd like to talk down the reputation that Gimmick has a bit regarding difficulty. Because, like, I think getting the, the bad or lesser ending isn't really too challenging, all things considered. You have unlimited continues, uh, none of which really send you back super far. So, like, right off the bat, it's way more forgiving than, like, Battletoads or Fester's Quest or the Ninja Gaiden games even. Uh, and once you feel comfortable getting the bad ending, I feel like practicing to to sort of refine what you do in the game is very generous with one-ups once you know what you're doing. Uh, so I think getting the good ending is fairly reasonable, actually. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The one-ups thing, like, if you do actually try to do and get all the secret stuff in there you get a bunch of one-ups every time you get it basically because i think there's score one-ups right like because like, yeah technically the items are worth a bunch so and, and again some of those things like you know are like jumping and timing things exactly right so you might die a couple times but they're all skill jumps and a lot of the, the stuff like i'm just thinking of the one on the ship is like kind of not too far into the level and stuff like that you know what i mean yeah. like I, I, the levels themselves are not like i don't recall anything being super long if you will yeah um and like if you can you getting to the ends of these levels is not super difficult um but like you know finding the challenging things requires timing and thought etc etc so i think that like the best kinds of games have that dual layer 
uh, yeah. where it's like a game that can be played and enjoyed, but like is really tough to master. And I think a lot of games even today kind of have that. Uh, I mean, I don't even want to put this in the same category as Battletoads. That game's freaking impossible. I'm sorry. Yeah. The stupid no, speeder bike. Th- the, 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 oh, man. I, I can't even tell you how many times. Just thinking about Battletoads makes me angry. Um, and Ninja Gaiden, mm. you can, it's just learning and mapping. But, you know, Battletoads is yeah. another story. <laughs> yeah, but, absolutely. <laughs> but so to, to, to clarify, like, you know, I think the game is difficult. But, like, it's not more difficult than other games that are beloved from that era. I mean, like, even, like, yeah. Castlevania 3 is, like, ridiculously impossible. But people love that game for some reason. Yeah, it's it's right in that pocket of games where it's, like, as hard as they could be, but they can still manage to be fun. It doesn't cross the yeah. the 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 barrier. It doesn't cross the line into being obnoxious and and annoying. So, obnoxious is the right word. Yeah, it, it's not like obnoxious. Yeah, yeah that's exactly yeah. what I'd say. Because there's definitely. Uh, well, I mean, I guess we should talk about the me- the mechanics a bit if you want to provide some context on like why why it's challenging. Yeah, yeah. I mean. You know, so it has the typical run kind of elements, but the central mechanic for attacking enemies is charging up a star that you release and kind of throw <laughs> into the hinterlands. It kind of bounces around and stuff. Yeah, so like you hold down the B button to charge a star, and it's you're sort of holding it above your head. When you let go, it bounces around, but it loses some momentum as it goes, bouncing less and less, and like sometimes like sliding along the ground. You know, at, at the end of it, and then once it disappears, you're free to charge uh, up another star to attack with. You can use the star to attack enemies, but you have to learn how to play with the momentum. The game actually has some interesting physics um, that, yeah. you know, you kind of slide around a lot, and so do the stars. Um, so if you release the star while jumping, it'll fall from higher up, which means that it's going to have more of a bounce. So I think the real challenge is, like, trying to figure out how to use the star to its full ability. And, like, the best players will use the star not just as a weapon, but as a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah, because that's where the crazy part kicks in. You can ride your star as well. But there's not like an alternate mechanic for riding it. You just have to jump on top of it while it's bouncing around. Yeah, and you have to keep in mind that the star moves faster than you do. So it's not like you can just release it and then immediately jump onto it. You're going to find yourself bouncing the stars off walls and riding it when it comes back to you, things like that. And most of the tougher secret areas involve pulling off like flatly insane, crazy star riding (laughs) timing. And a lot of it's timing too, but like timing Mm -hmm. tricks. So that's where the game's at its hardest. Absolutely. You know, but it's very well refined, like we said before. The developers really deeply understood the set of physics they came up with, and they challenged you to pull off things that just look impossible. Like, you'll see uh, this a passageway way up high in the ceiling, and you're thinking, there's no way I could jump that high or have the star bounce that high, but it is possible. And uh, so it's really cool what they came up with. Yeah, so speaking of them, the developers, this is kind of crazy. Gimmick was made by only four people. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) And that's counting the two people who did the composing and sound programming. So aside from the music, it was just one person for design and programming and another person for graphics. Yeah, that's what's so mind blowing here. Because you were talking before about like how this is really one of the best looking Famicom games there is. And Mm -hmm. like if you made a short list of the best looking NES games, like, you know, I'm trying to think of what would be on there. You'd have Super Mario Brothers 3, Kirby's Adventure, um, like Batman Return of the Joker, um, you know, perhaps a few others, but gimmick is absolutely up there. And uh, but, but you look at the credits for a lot of those other games, like Kirby's Adventure had five character designers, eight programmers, not counting the chief programmer, and like a bunch of other staff. Um, yeah, so this so is like crazy. It's that is crazy, and gimmick deserves recognition for the amazing achievement it is. You know, 
Yeah. Yeah, we could go on and on gushing out the game. It has these really subtle mechanical features that they didn't need to include, but they're only there because it feels like the devs thought of everything. It has a few really neat Easter eggs and secrets, absolutely top-notch character designs and artwork. Uh, I think the coolest looking sprites of any NES game. It's packed with neat encounters, unique uh, sprites that only show up at one part in the game uh, that'll have a unique AI. You know, so I, I don't think I can go so far as to call it the best 8-bit platformer because it's kind of like impossible to compete with Mario. Um, but mm-hmm. I would go ahead and say that I think it's it's the coolest 8-bit platformer. That's where it sits for me. Yeah, I mean, they thought of everything, like the little details, those little tiny things in there. And then I, I completely forgot how it works, but there's something about like in the second level, like, you know, in terms of Easter eggs, that's like really cool, right? I, I don't remember, like something about sacking the boss early or something like that. Yeah, if you speed run to the boss in level two, you'll catch him asleep. It's like a pirate boss and you fight him kind of like on the, <laughs> I don't know what you call it, like the mass of the ship sort of. Um mm-hmm. And it's technically possible to get him to like jump off, but if you catch him while he's asleep, you can sort of push him off. But the crazy part is, <laughs> while he's asleep, there's a unique extra sprite there that you don't normally get to see otherwise. It's a, it's an alarm clock creature. It's like it's like this little guy, <laughs> and uh, the alarm clock is asleep on the job. That's why the boss hasn't woken up yet. So the alarm clock sort of freaks out. You see him kind of like open his eyes and wake up, and he the alarm sets off, and that wakes up the boss. Uh, it's so cool. <laughs> I mean, they thought of that. Like, you know, there's only four people working on it. It's like, you know, it'd be really funny if someone gets through the stage really quick, you know, we'll have the boss asleep. You know what I mean? Like those little details are what make games like classics, you know? All right. So let's finally move on to the Sunsoft 5B chip that's found in Gimmick. So Gimmick is the only game to make use of the Sunsoft 5B for expansion audio. So just like our LaGrange Point episode with the VRC7, this is another entry in our set of episodes on the Famicom Sound Expansion where we're dedicating an entire episode to a single soundtrack. Because, of course, that's all that's all that used it, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, some outdated resources may refer to the Sunsoft 5B as the FME7. Uh, you might Google it and even find like some old lists that I made where I refer to as FME7. So, oops. Sorry for contributing to that wrong information. <laughs> uh, the FME7 is a parent category of chip that was used in several other Sunsoft games like Gremlins 2, Hebereke, and others. Uh, the 5B specifically was the version of the FME7 that actually had sound expansion, and it was only used in uh, Gimmick, like we said. Well, yeah, I guess sort of. I mean, the situa- it's like just like the situation with VRC7 in LaGrange Point, where LaGrange Point was the only game to use it for expansion audio, but the chip was also used in Tiny Toon Adventures 2. In the case of the Sunsoft 5B, it can be found, I believe, in some, co- some copies of Dodge Danpei 2. Yes, I think I read that. I know it's one of the Dodge Danpei games, I believe. And just a quick note before we jump into the sound capabilities of the Sunsoft 5B. David Sillard, the director of product development for Sunsoft America, spoke about the FME7 family of chips for an interview for our friends at VGARC. We've talked about how these mappers, better known as MMC chips, uh, enhance the abilities of the Famicom and NES games. But it's great to hear more about it from a primary source, which is something you know we talk about all the time, is super rare, <laughs> having yes. a primary source. <clears throat> You'll find out more about this in the History of Sunsoft Part 4 on VGARC's website. Yeah, here's some of what he had to say. The FME chipset family enhanced the capabilities of the standard issue Famicom slash NES with greater sprite management capabilities and better sound channels. The FME chipset, through their various evolutions, were created to accomplish several goals. 
first was splitting up the mathematical tasks to gain greater efficiency and speed. Next was to enable the management of additional sprite usage, therefore enabling larger animated characters than ever before. Uh, music and sound effects were enhanced, adding additional voices or channels. As each chip release grew in number, so did its capabilities. For the third generation of NES slash Famicom games, these chips would employ a greater animation and picture processing wow factor. The player-controlled avatar would be uh, able to more impressively buff up in armament or stature without any uh, consequence to the overall performance. Playfield constructions would also feature more interactive capabilities for greater play possibilities. Uh, deformable upon collision with or stage destruction uh, by weapon fire could be more easily incorporated. Uh, and he wraps it up by saying, Greater sprite manipulation would also enable more enemies on the screen that are not duplicates or clones of each other, including their behavior patterns. Therefore, newer fun challenges could be offered. So it almost sounds like he's selling it in a way, but like, I mean, it's true. It, it, uh, it let you do so much more uh, with your games. Yeah, yeah. And so once again, we tend to refer to Famicom games with sound expansions as having sound expansion chips. That's just kind of an easy way of pointing out that the MMC chips that are just basically offering extra audio. Not a really dedicated sound chips per se, but there's a kind of a tacit understanding in the community of what we mean when we call the something like the 5B uh, a sound chip. Uh, just like we call the 2A03 a sound chip. It's not actually, it's, it does yeah, a lot not. more than that too, you know? We're just ignoring everything else it does because it's the audio that this that interests us basically. Of course. Okay, let's get down to business here. So what does the quote-unquote 5B sound chip offer? <laughs> it's uh, PSG audio. That's it. All right, well, I guess we're done. <laughs> okay, so we've talked about PSG several times on the podcast now. PSG stands for Programmable Sound Generator, and it's a type of sound chip that was super common at the time. Basically, most 8-bit platforms not counting the NES and C64, uh, used PSG audio. This thing was everywhere. Yeah, I mean, so we're talking about MSX computers, the ZX Spectrum, the Atari ST, and, and I can go on and on and on. The Sega Master System and Game Gear have a variant PSG, so by extension, that means the Sega Genesis also had it. Any voices on the Genesis that sound like square waves that weren't FM synthesis, that was PSG audio. So it's everywhere. It's pervasive, if you will. <laughs> yeah. So if you're trying to picture what the 5B really offered... Just picture an Atari ST running alongside your NES. Like, that's literally what you're getting. Uh, the guts of Gimmick offer exactly what those systems offered. But we do have to differentiate what the 5B was capable of from and like from how it was actually used in Gimmick. And that's kind of the, a big thing here. Yeah. In Gimmick, it only ever uses the square waves. That's it. So the understanding of what it added in terms of a Famicom sound expansion, that's super easy to explain. Gimmick has just three extra channels of square waves which stack on top of the 2A03 that well the Famicom's 2A03 which is mm -hmm. five original channels for a total of eight channels. Yeah. Uh, here's an excerpt of the extra channels isolated in one of the songs from Gimmick. And here's a quick demonstration of the square wave playing from its lowest pitch to its highest pitch. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but PSG Audio did offer more than just square waves. We've talked about it in a few other episodes, so we're not going to go over it, all the little details because we've, you know, check the MSX episode, check out some of our other episodes. But here's a quick crash course on what it could do. First, 
it can also generate noise. So here's a demonstration of the 5B scaling through all 32 available pitches, none of which were actually heard in Gimmick. I also put together a quick drum beat using the noise so you could hear what that might sound like in a more musical context. The PSG also comes with a feature for combining the square wave tones with noise. So here's a quick sound demo of the noise scaling down and up the 32 pitches while combined with the note C at various octaves. And remember that even though you're hearing what sounds like two distinct sounds at once, they're actually coming from just one sound channel. Yeah, and you can also combine those with envelopes as well, but the envelopes are sort of their own uh, whole can of worms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the super quick explanation here is that you can select a few different uh, envelope shapes, like a triangle or a saw. This is a welcome addition to your sound palette, since otherwise you're only limited to the square waves for your musical tones. However, it's still quite limited, and to make matters worse, support for these extra features of the 5B is often lacking, which compounds that issue even further. Yes, but uh, here's a quick sound demo provided by our friend Hunter Trogeek, um, who you may remember from our Capcom episode. It's a couple envelopes scaling from their lowest pitch uh, up to their highest pitch, and then you hear it all again, but combined with the tone generator. In other words, you're hearing them doubled up with the square waves in the second half, but and once again, though, it's all happening in a single sound channel, which is pretty cool, and it, it makes some kind of gnarly sounds. So we don't want to go too deep down this rabbit hole because, you know, largely because I don't fully understand it myself. That would be a big part of it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But there's a couple things to take in. Uh, Hundred Geek points out that you hear notes repeat in there, especially at the higher pitches. You know, it's supposed to be going up these notes, but you start to hear do da 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 kind of like that. But in the tracker space, he's actually continuing upwards in what should be a C major scale. He didn't write in repeating notes. But it's just that it can't handle it. Uh, he says that that's because the resolution of the 5B envelope is so bad due to the low clock speed that there is no range. Ah, oh, interesting. Yeah, that kind of sucks not having the full chromatic range. I've never actually worked with that, so I'm not even, I didn't even know that that was a problem. Yeah. He also provided a couple reasons why, and we'll talk about the low clock speed more in a, in a second, because that is one kind of unique thing here about the 5B. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, he, he also provided a couple of reasons why mostly only the, the saw envelope is useful without severe lim- limitations. We can elaborate on this in more in the show comments, um, but this means, you know, the takeaway here is that the envelope feature is generally preferred for baseline sounding parts. It's not great at higher pitches. Yeah, and I mean, so as we just mentioned, support for this can be actually spotty. Um, and like, since Gimmick only uses the square wave, some NES emulators and NSF players don't bother dealing with all the bells and whistles of the 5B. They just basically do the bare minimum to get Gimmick working. Yeah, so to my understanding, OCC Fama Tracker offers the most 5B support of any public or easy-to-use tools out there. Um, but even that has its issues. 
I'm a Trackman says, I can list a series of bugs with 5B support, playback, unrealistic mode conflicts, behavior that doesn't occur in tracker but does on hardware, and incompatible files from three different versions. Yeah, uh, when and I think Trackman, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this in the comments, but pretty much when uh, anytime the version was rolled over in OCC, uh, if you made a Sunsoft 5B track, uh, it wouldn't play. You'd lose it. You'd have to use the old version of OCC. So basically, every time uh, there was a new version of OCC released, it made your old track not work anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Which, <laughs> Which, by the way, th- this isn't to knock on OCC. Uh, like it, it, they're like the only ones really making an effort to put make usable tools for uh, Sunsoft Five B. I mean, so the, the the I mean the thing is like a lot of the stuff is built off of what you know. Especially I have to imagine the original Family Tracker is bought off NSF and all these other kinds of files and support. And then really, if NSF is not even really NSF players are not even really understanding what the Five B can do. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like open up yeah. a new can of worms so of course there's going to be a bunch of problems with it because it's actually a very powerful chip that's not used for what it can do if that makes any sense so yeah um i mean it, it's to be expected it's just you know it's difficult because our understanding was so low that it does create issues even in OCC. So I've even had instances of making uh, you know different kinds of songs with the 5B, and it sounds completely different once I bring it <clears throat> to hardware. I mean, what what can we do? I mean, the cartridge itself is like five hundred dollars, so you're gonna have to use that to test. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it's it's fairly difficult. <clears throat> yeah. So our sort of closing thoughts on if you really like want to make PSG music, that you should probably just seek out tools to make music directly for the ZX Spectrum, Atari ST, or you know MSX and so forth. The only reason you'd want to wrangle with the 5B in its current state, you know, with the tools that are out there, is if you really wanted to pair it with the NES's sound. Yeah, that, I guess that would really be the only reason. I mean, th- there's plenty of trackers for all the things we just mentioned that can do yes. everything it's supposed to do. Yeah, and I guess that brings us to our next point of discussion. Remember how we said that some emulators will get will just basically do the bare minimum for emulating the soundtrack? Well, <laughs> some of them don't even do that right. Yeah, and this is great. I almost forgot about this. I just recently learned about this too, actually. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. So Gimmick was released, uh, or I guess re-released for PlayStation 1 in 2002. It was uh, released on a disc called the Sunsoft Memorial Collection Volume 6. I always thought it, the fact that it's a memorial is really funny. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I know it's a bad... Rest like, in peace. But like, in memoriam, like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so that also had Super Spy Hunter on it. So let's take a listen to an excerpt from gameplay. <laughs> the, the sound expansion there is an octave uh, too high. Yeah, and it's kind of an interesting story, uh, you know, that I didn't even know about or anything. Like when it comes down to this, like, so the Sunsoft Five B happens to be a variant of PSG. You know, again, variants PSG. Here we go again, right? Right. Um, and specifically, it's the YM twenty one forty nine F that's also found in the Atari ST, but it runs at half the clock speed. So with little detail, with that, you know, with that forgotten or ignored, it seems that the PS1 version just emulated PSG audio the normal way, in quotes. They set the clock speed to what you'd expect for other systems instead of what the 5B actually used. Whoops. The funny part is uh, TrackMan recreated this problem on original hardware. Uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly how he did it. He could probably um, leave some comments in the show notes explaining what he did. But uh, it's great. So he's recreating what the PS1 soundtrack uh, sounds like on original hardware.
So to wrap up our discussion on Sunsoft's 5B audio expansion, we want to show off what it's capable of when it's used to its fullest. Trackman did a fantastic cover of a song that was originally by Johan Hippel. Uh, it's an incredible arrangement that shows what this thing can do, and you'll hear it all without any regular NES audio in the mix, so it's just the 5B by itself. Yeah, we hope you enjoy this killer track as a brief intermission before we finally discuss the gimmick soundtrack. Thank you. 
Okay, so as we mentioned earlier, Gimmick had one composer and one sound programmer. The music was composed entirely by Musashi Kageyama, and the programming was done by Naohisa Morota. This was Kageyama-san's third ever video game soundtrack, and only Famicom soundtrack, actually. Uh, Prior to this, he did the music to two Sunsoft games for the PCE, uh, Outlive, or is that Outlive? I'm not sure. And uh, Benki Gaiden. In an interview with Gimmick's director, Tomomi Sakai, he elaborated on why he picked Kageyama for the music, and also why Gimmick used sound expansion. These are his words. Around that time, I heard the music from Outlive, a game being developed on the TurboGrafx-16, and I couldn't think of anyone else I'd rather have doing Mr. Gimmick's music than the composer Masashi Kageyama, so I asked him. The only thing was that the Nintendo didn't have enough voices to reproduce the feel of Kageyama's chords. We asked Kagoya for the drawings, so that was taken care of. Uh, If I did my best to create the animations, we'd be okay on that front, too. Kind of underselling himself, actually. Um, Yeah. And I I knew I wouldn't have to worry about the music quality if Kageyama was going to be our composer, Uh, but I had to do something about the fact that there weren't enough sound channels. That's when I decided our game would have a built-in sound expansion. Kageyama grew up playing saxophone and took an interest in computers when he saw his saxophone teacher using a computer to produce music for a TV commercial. So he took a loan himself to buy a bunch of gear and only to come to the realization that he actually (laughs) had no clue how to use a PC. (laughs) Yeah, so, and this is kind of the crazy part. To better familiarize himself with computers, he just kind of wanted to jump into the deep end uh, and just apply for jobs at various computer companies. Um, And so that's how he wound up at Sunsoft. And in an interview with Shun Arita uh, for the liner notes of ROM, Cassette Disc, and Sunsoft Remix, Masaje Kageyama had this to say, Getting to compose music at the company I had chosen in order to learn more about computers, well, from my perspective, it was a kill two birds with one stone kind of chance that I'd never have again. There's honestly nothing better than getting paid to learn how to do something, so yeah. I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, that, that rules. If you want to dig further back into his history, there's a great interview conducted by Chris Greening for VGMO. We'll publish that in the show notes. There's a lot of great stuff there. Absolutely. Like, a little nugget here, for example, is uh, Kage-san wasn't very fond of music at a young age. His music classes in elementary school and middle school bored him, but he did eventually experiment with making his own radios and amps, and in the process, would actually find and listen to the music of, you know, his own choosing. He cites Olivia Newton-John in Chicago as being some of the music that he grew up listening to. Then eventually music by Art Pepper and Keith Jarrett got him to jazz uh, and inspired him to learn saxophone. Here's an excerpt from Country by Keith Jarrett, which was very influential to him. He talks more about his work on Outlive and Benki Gaiden, but we'll skip on over to the story of Gimmick. The director and programmer of Gimmick, Tomomi Sakai, was working out of Nagoya, while Kageyama was working out of Tokyo. Uh, there's That's more than a four-hour drive by car. It's, it's a pretty long drive. <laughs> yeah. So they didn't actually meet very often, which is actually really funny. So, you know, working remotely was a thing back then, too, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so they had to communicate with everything over telephone. Uh, so, you know, this basically was like 
you know, Kage-san playing music examples over the phone to, to uh, Sakai to hear the general themes and motifs. <laughs> yeah. And here's a quote from the interview which explains a lot about the arrangement of Gimmick. In order to replicate my music easily, Sakai implemented sound expansion sources. Before making the soundtrack for Gimmick, I had already created the music for two PC Engine games. I had no issues with the layout or controls of the music composition. However, Sakai was quite picky with the materials of the game, be it the programming, graphics, scenario, the game itself, etc. Therefore, I ended up using all of the possible sound channels to their fullest. The process felt more like putting a puzzle together than actual music composition. The key quote here being that putting the soundtrack together felt like a puzzle, because you know, in reviewing how Gimmick Soundtrack was arranged, we found this puzzle-like nature to be reflected very clearly in the final product, actually. Yes, absolutely. While we stressed earlier that the 5B didn't use all of the features of PSG audio and only use the square waves, it's worth mentioning that with that limitation in mind, there was really no limitation on how the sound channels were like actually arranged. Yeah, I mean, you can't expect the sound expansion channels and gimmick to fill one particular role. It'll keep changing what parts are tucked in there. Yeah, every permutation you can think of, like melody in the 2A03, chords in the 5B. Melody in the 5B, chords in the 2A03. You could have chords split across both of them. Uh, There's parts where there's a melody from the 2A03 that's echoed in the 5B and vice versa. Um, it just, the list goes on. Like you really can't put it in a box. There's no predicting at any given moment. Like, oh, I expect the melody to come from this sound channel. It's just, it's going to be all over the place. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's really cool that he, he mentioned that. Yeah. And we'll demonstrate a lot of that basically as we listen to the soundtrack. But I think there's one other thing worth mentioning, which would be the PAL version of the soundtrack, which would be for Mr. Gimmick. Yeah. Um... I don't know what kinds of words I should say on this, but I can just say that it lacks the sound expansion and it's not great. Yeah, it's it's unfortunately it's not like the Castlevania three and Akuma Joe Densetsu situation. Like in that case, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of people prefer the Akuma Joe Densetsu version with the sound expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's just Castlevania three port is really good, has a fantastic soundtrack, and there's pros and cons across both of them. I don't think anyone feels the same way about Mr. Gimmick. I don't know that anyone prefers that soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I mean, there's some cases where the soundtrack just simply drops expansion channels and does nothing to compensate them, just chops it off. Yeah. Um, This can be found in Strange Memories of Death Track. I believe the entire track is actually that way. And the result is just it sounds empty, like it's clearly missing something. Oh yeah, so the tempo is also different here. The PAL tracks are faster, with the track we just heard being around 170 BPM, while the original is around 164. I mean, and I guess, you know, it's not like they didn't they did that for everything. Sometimes they do make an attempt at incorporating the sound expansion voices, you know, and try to like going back in and kind of cramming everything together. So here's an example from Good Night, take two, where they move the expansion melody to the triangle wave, but the end result is still something that's very thin and lifeless compared to the original.
Here's another example that was pointed out to us by I'm a Track Man. It comes from the Good Weather track. There's a part of the song where the mel- there's like a part of the melody that kind of sounds like steel drums. We'll play the original followed by the PAL version and we'll let you decide how well it works or well in, in, in quotes it works in the PAL version. Uh, here's another strange change. The percussion in the introduction to Innocent is different. Uh, in the original, it's a very simple repeating rhythm, like a hi-hat going one E and the two E and the three. Uh, and it just plays over and over. It doesn't change. Uh, but they left out what sounds like random notes from that pattern, um, making it more syncopated and varied. This new rhythm is also in a five-bar loop instead of a four-bar loop, so it doesn't even match the rest of the music. Does that sound like maybe they just like put a wrong note in the MML or like or whatever they were using in the compiler? Because it like five bar, I, that's just so weird. <laughs> well, apparently this. We'll, we'll give it a listen first. It actually isn't an, an intentional change, uh, as I found out. Uh, let's give it a listen first, though. Yeah, so I was asking Mr. Norbert and Trackman about this. It has to do with losing frames to make it PAL compatible. If I understood them correctly, the game is using the same source code, but new code is added to adjust the tempo, which is done by dropping frames. Trackman says, yeah. Trackman says, it's super noticeable on the noise channel because frequently the first frame of a note is lost. And Mr. Norbert added onto this by saying that uh, a lot of other PAL Sunsoft games have the exact same problem. I, and I did not know that. I didn't know that either. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, weird. So this would mean that the previous example is not the only part of the soundtrack that's actually affected by this problem then, right? Right. Yeah, there's other parts that sound a bit weird and messed up throughout, but that's like the easiest to spot example, I think. So we've talked about the history of the soundtrack and some of the issues with the PAL and the PS1 versions of it. Are there any other loose ends before we actually listen to the entire soundtrack here? Yeah, I think one last thing worth mentioning is that Remember how we said a U.S. port of this game was canceled? Ah, yes. There was actually a prototype ROM of that, which was found and, of course, dumped. But it was never ripped to NSF, correct? Well, actually, uh, I am happy to report, very stoked about this, that Mr. Norbert just recently ripped an NSF for it, like like two weeks ago or something. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's basically identical to the PAL version, but instead it plays at the correct tempo and doesn't mess things up with those dropping frames. So, you know, it's still inferior, but if you really wanted mm-hmm. to listen to the soundtrack, you know, in its expansionless version, we recommend the US prototype over the PAL release. Uh, here's a quick demonstration of the previous example. You'll hear that the noise channel plays correctly and doesn't drop notes this time. And last, but certainly not least, we should mention that the composer's original demo tracks are available. They can be found on disc two of Cassette Disc in Sunsoft Remix CD. <laughs> That's a mouthful. It's, it's, you know, in memorial, um, <laughs> which was originally released in 2011. Yeah, it, it's so cool. We have access to his original demos, and that's, you know, like how often does that actually happen for video game soundtracks, you know? It's so cool, yeah. 
Yeah, and so we'll be playing a few excerpts from some of those original demo tracks coming up, but definitely look up that CD if you're interested in hearing them in full. Okay, so without further ado, actually we have one more sample. No, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll actually get to the soundtrack now. Um, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna take a listen to the complete gimmick soundtrack. Uh, I've ripped all the tracks from original hardware uh, using my TNS HFC three. Um, so right off an actual gimmick cartridge. So we'll be listening to the actual real thing, which is super fun. So first up is Good Morning, which is the introduction track. amazing because like you kind of fire up the game and it just like plays this and it has like the nice cinematic and everything and it's like one of my it's literally like one of my favorite things like you know oh, even yeah. if the game is really difficult it does and, you know and it's kind of like hiding its difficulty you know through an, a polished exterior just loading it up and watching that intro is like one of my favorite things like it, it's so nice um yeah so this know. track is set to a really cool introduction sequence which uh you know sets the story for the game uh, it's uh, this girl's birthday, and she has all these toys, but she gets this new toy, which is uh, Yumitaro. And uh, it, it's clearly her new favorite toy, so all the other toys get jealous. And in the middle of the night, like so this weird sort of portal to another dimension opens up, and they kidnap her, just because I guess they're pissed off or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and then you, you're Yumitaro, you jump in through that portal, and you're off to, you know, hopefully go uh, find your owner. So, uh that's that's pretty much it so let's talk about the track we just listened to getting back to the music let's talk a little bit of it how it's arranged i mean for the most part you have the pulse waves the 2a03 taking up the melody where one channel is the main melody and the other is the echo and then the 5b is mostly providing those kind of like staccato like don't don't kind of chords in the background but the third channel of the 5B in the tr- in this track takes on a bigger role, actually. Not only fleshing out some of these chords, but interjecting with some harmonies and flourishes that build upon the melody coming from the 2A03. You'll hear it kind of best in the ending of the track, uh, which is, I love the ending of the track. It's, I, I, I'm going to keep gushing about this soundtrack yes. while we talk about it. Um, so here's all the channels muted aside from the main melody, which is in channel 2 of the 2A03, combined with channel 3 of the 5B. That's so nice. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, it's great. I think one of my favorite parts from that track is the bongo hits coming from the sample channel. I don't know what it is. I just really love the way the, those lo-fi one-bit samples sound. I forget who said it, but there was someone on the Battle of the Bits that said nothing that has bongos in it is good. Um, so you're wrong. I don't remember who that was, but they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, first of all, there's this. Then there's also uh, Bayou Billy, right? So like that's yeah. like, that's incredibly wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I forget who said it, but I just remember that being like, you know, don't stay away from the bongos. Was like kind of, it's kind of like a joke. I, I mean, in some of the NSF, uh, the competitions and stuff like that. Uh, That's funny. I've used a lot of bongos, I think. <laughs> They're great. And, you know, I was happy to hear that when I was looking up the original demo version, that the percussion part was uh, originally envisioned that way as well. So next up is No Limits, the level select jingle. Once again, there's some great percussion work in here. This has nothing to do with the sound expansion. Uh, it's just some solid work from the regular 2A03. There's a really big and deep snare sound at the end of the loop, and it's a few things combined. Firstly, the sample channel has this nice big snare sound at the end of the loop. Then, in addition to that, the triangle wave is doing a downwards pitch bends kind of to, to augment the drums. This happens frequently throughout the soundtrack, but it does an even deeper pitch bend to augment this heavier snare sound. Then you add the noise on top of this. The noise doesn't do anything special for the big snare sound, it just plays the same snare sound it's been making. Uh, but another cool detail in here uh, is the weird crunchy sounding part that's uh, used to imitate hand claps. Like it's like a weird coughing type sound for the hand claps. I love it. Yeah, yeah. And if we compare this to the original demo, you can hear that they were trying to recreate as many details as they could from Kage-san's original compositions. The hand claps, uh, the the bigger drum sound at the end, that's all in here. Next up is a track called Happy Birthday, which is the stage one theme.
happy birthday you've been kidnapped um (laughs) yeah right (laughs) so we'd like to use this track to focus on how echo effects are sometimes implemented in gimmick uh so with all the extra sound channels there's plenty of space for a two-channel echo so you do find that a lot you know as we've talked about on the show before this is a common technique where you'll have notes of a melody essentially copied and pasted over to another sound channel uh, but slightly delayed in time and at a lower volume but there's something kind of crazy in this track in particular there's a three channel echo oh yeah that's awesome like you know <laughs> that's really taking advantage of it i i've I've seen, I've like jokingly done that in some of my own tracks, but the fact that, you know, someone actually did it in a game soundtrack, is this like the only instance of this that has ever happened? Yeah. So this is weird, crazy, uh, coincidental timing here, but our friend Kevin, also known as Curriculum Crasher, recently pointed out an example to us that's found in Lagrange Point. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah. That does have a multi-channel echo in it. Uh, So we'll demonstrate that three-channel echo here. There's a section where channel 2 on the 2AO3 plays a melody, then channel 3 on the 5B adds an echo to it, then channel 1 back on the 2AO3 plays an even more delayed echo. To demonstrate this, you'll hear the first part by itself, then again with the first echo added on, and then again with both voices. So we thought it was pretty cool to find that, Um, but if that's not excessive enough, the same track also goes in the opposite direction, includes some single channel echo as well. So you have two techniques used at the same time, which is pretty cool. Like we're talking, I mean, gimmick is kind of late in the life cycle of the NES anyway, but this is like sheer audio mastery, you know? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So we've discussed this a couple of times before, but there's a few techniques available for single channel echo. And usually it involves playing a note and then having a little bump in the volume after it's already faded a bit. What you'll hear here is a part with the echo effect removed and then again with the echo effect as heard in the final product. So moving on, the next track is Just Friends, uh, which is a very weird uh, song title, I have to say. Uh, This is the secret area music.
So it's kind of buried in the mix, but I like this one voice in the background. It's just a single note that repeatedly attacks, and like, and it goes on and off every other measure. Uh, and again, with some single channel echo applied to it. Here's what it sounds like. That part is present throughout the entire ending portion of the track. Uh, see if you can hear it again in the final mix, because it's kind of soft in there. There's also periodic noise used in this track, uh, which kicks in for the B section. Periodic noise, usually at the higher pitches, has some tone to it, so it kind of sounds a bit melodic. It's good for imitating a triangle, like a, an instrument triangle. Yeah, yeah, I think, just to clarify, it's not, not like the actual triangle that you would hear in an orchestra, not yeah, the triangle not the channel. channel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, listening back to the demo, that doesn't actually have the triangle part in there at all. Uh, so I wonder if that was added by the sound programmer as their own little touch, uh, maybe to flush out the, the track a bit more and not un leave the noise channel unused, you know? I'm not sure. Um, so again, you can hear here, there's no, there's no, uh, that ding, ding part, it's completely missing. Let's move on to the next track, which is the boss theme, which is Aporia, which that's, that's a real word, right? Does that mean something? I mean, all of the tracks are real words, but I have, I've never heard that word uh, elsewhere. We should look that up. What, what is that? Take it. Let's take a look here. So, <clears throat> all right, I'm saying it. Eporia. It should, I think it's an E more like Eporia, Eporia, something like that, is the unresolvable internal contradiction or logical disjunction in a text, argument, or theory. And an example would be the celebrated Eporia, whereby a Cretan declares all Cretans to be liars. That really helps me. <laughs> um, but it's a it's an ancient Greek word. One of my favorite little details in this track is the drum flam that occurs just a couple seconds into it. Uh, it happens just once in the entire track, and it might only show up in one other spot in the entire soundtrack. Uh, so I definitely also appreciate its rare appearance. Uh, you'll hear it at the end of this clip. So a flam is when you have a staggered hit that is played with both hands. Uh, for example, like if I play one, two, three, four on my chest here without without flams. If I played again with flams, it would sound like this. Uh, this is something you won't commonly find in NES music. It's something that's very natural and sounds just like something a real drummer would play. Uh, so it's a great detail to have in there. We double-checked the demo here, and we found that it was in fact originally supposed to have just one flame in that exact spot, so that's kind of a crazy detail. But it also has an extra bass drum hit leading into the flam that we don't get in the final product. 
Yeah, there's a bit of a pickup, like a like a double bass drum hit that uh, you'll hear here in the demo. Anyway, so moving on, let's listen to the stage two theme titled Good Weather. use this track to illustrate another way in which gimmick takes advantage of extra sound channels. It's not uncommon for voices to be doubled up in some way to augment them, which is exactly what you, you find at the beginning of this track. One of the five beat channels doubles up with the melody, but plays it softer without vibrato and an octave higher. Let's listen to the original melodic voice by itself, followed by the five B channel by itself, and then followed by both of them mixed together. We've given a pretty good look at how the 5B is being used and how everything is arranged, so as we get further into the soundtrack here, we'll be picking out fewer details along the way. Yeah, we'll probably just start listening to most of the tracks straight through. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, there are a few more things we'll be pointing out along the way, but we'll mostly pick up the pace here. Uh, Next up is Slow Illusion, the Stage 3 theme. Yeah, man, that that like downbeat bass part that comes right before like I guess what would be like the, the chorus or whatever is like one of my favorites. I love the melody there and just kind of like how it's got that kind of slow churning feeling. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like, really nice. The song has a very chill groove, but that's where it gets like just a little bit more serious for a moment. And yeah, like yeah. It, 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 it's funny because like I feel that the, the the soundtrack in general goes between uh, you know the darkness and kind of light things i think we talked about that a little bit in here too but like it's kind of like danger but also kind of happy and i kind of feel like you you feel both of that like think about how like kind of serious the boss theme is compared to like the stage two theme you know what i mean like the Mm -hmm. the juxtaposition is very apparent yeah the game definitely throws a few juxtapositions like that in there and it's great 
Oh yeah, and so we should mention that Slow Illusion is one of the tracks that doesn't have an original demo that can be heard. I think there's four tracks that don't have them. Yeah, most of the, as you said, most of the tracks do have demos, but a few don't. And what we'll do here is we'll point out which ones don't when we get to them. Yeah. Um, so we'll move along here. The next track is called Paradox, which is from the ending section of stage three. So like we were just talking about here is kind of that dark and kind of stormy kind of thing, you know, and, you know, the, the previous part of the stage takes place mostly outdoors and it's sunny and cheery. But when Paradox kicks in, you get this, this weird subterranean area that's dark. Again, the du- juxtaposition between dark and light. I love this area. It's, it's just such a short level segment. But like when you first enter it, you'll notice a sort of hole in the wall below your character, but you mm-hmm. can't do anything with it. It's just a detailing environment. But when you get like a little bit further into level you meet these flying bugs and uh you can follow them back here and see that they're all entering that hole for whatever reason i don't believe i knew about that <laughs> yeah it's crazy the bugs like are completely apathetic like they'll hurt you if they fly into you like you know side mm-hmm. side on but you can jump on them and ride them it's cool it's like you're entering this world where uh and actually this this is reflected a lot in the ai of a bunch of enemies in the game where a lot of them are kind of apathetic or more playful or uh, it's not like other video game sprites traditionally where everything is always out to get you or always hurts you by touching you. Um, you know, there's some creatures in this game that are just going about their business and they don't even care about you. It's awesome. Yeah. So the next track is the music to stage four and it's called Paradigm. Did you just use Paradigm in a sentence? Yeah, man. The stage five theme is called Lionheart. Let's give it a listen.
So as we said, we'd be pointing these out. Lionheart is another one of the themes that is without an original demo. Yeah, and so I don't really have anything technical to point out. Um, I think this has always been one of my lesser favorite level themes. Um, and I think that's only due to the fault of just like that the, it sort of takes a while to get going. Yeah. It's kind of a slow burner mm-hmm, of a track. Mm-hmm. Um, but then like every time I listen to it, I remember that it, it culminates in that real cool riff at the end. And I'm just I'm always excited to hear that coming. I, I love it. That part's so cool. No, it is really cool. So the next track is Identity Believer. This is another boss theme. Let's give it a listen. I, man, I love this track so much. Um, yeah. I, I think that weird little drum fill at the beginning, I think that's ca- kind of sort of a flam. I think that's what I had in mind when I said there's like only one other one in the whole soundtrack. So that combined with the other one, uh, I think that's the only time that happens, I think. Yeah, it, it's kind of cool how this is presented because the boss of Sage 5 is a two-part boss fight. The main boss theme, Aporia, plays for you know the first half of the fight, and Identity Believer first appears here in the second half of the fight. But it also shows up once again for the final boss of stage six. Yeah, the, the boss is so cool. So like you have this boss, he's like this little blob guy who's in this sort of capsule that's suspended on this like sort of trolley system or whatever uh, on the ceiling and he's shooting lasers at you. And when you defeat that form, he sort of leaves, goes off screen. And this like spider mech kind of walks walks in, into the screen that looks like something straight out of uh, Journey to Silvius. And, um, but then the blob like sort of capsule like comes back into view and you can see him sort of like bobbing up and down in his in his little like capsule thing indicating like he's he's punching the controls like you know he's the one controlling the mech there and it's just such a cool scene um and it's by far like the hardest boss fight of the game so far so i, I, I don't think i've ever actually beaten that boss to be honest with you without help i think yeah i always i always I, i've never beaten the game for real like I, i've never really put the effort in to be honest with you mm-hmm. but I, that boss is like the farthest i usually get before i just get angry <laughs> gotcha yeah i have a there's a part where you can farm extra lives in it so if you're hurting but haven't used continues uh mm-hmm. yet you're still on track and you got all the previous secret areas uh, as mm-hmm. long as you can farm lives in that level, it's kind of like an extra... It's kind of like your second chance to to get lives built back up to be able to tackle this boss and, and the bosses mm-hmm. coming up, uh, you know, without using any continues. So 
Uh, it is a very That's a good hard thing boss to know. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll have to think about that, like you know, because I've been trying to play through the game a little bit more here and there. It'd be nice. I'll have to. I, I never actually researched like how to play the game, so maybe that it'll be. I'll watch some playthroughs or something like that. If I could, if I had in a couple extra lives, I've gotten really close. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be my opportunity oh, to break does. through. So I'd love to go on a quick tangent on that actually, because this uh, speak again earlier we mentioned all the weird details and stuff this game has. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the extra live mechanic is absolutely bonkers. You can carry mm-hmm. like three sub weapon items in this game. So in addition to your star, you also have a couple other th- things you can attack with. You like you have to use your sub weapon, um, mm-hmm. and these the sub weapons come as like in the form of pickups. But if your three pickup slots are full, it'll be a solid object on the ground that you can't pick up. But it has like some sort of physics to it. Like you can push it around. If you have two objects that you can't pick up. You can push them into each other, and they'll morph into a new object that's a one-up that you can pick up. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so the secret area of um, this stage has a section off to the side where there's like all of these conveyor belts pushing all these objects around. Uh, mm. And it's kind of funny trying to push them into each other because you're fighting with the conveyor belts. Uh, so it's like it always takes like <laughs> kind of some effort to do, but there's no pits in that area. So it's not like you don't risk dying or anything. Um, but you can always get... I believe one more life than uh, like you can get two lives, just jump into a pit and come back and get two lives. So it's kind of it's a little slow. Like you can build up one extra life at a time, if I remember correctly. Okay. Um, Interesting. That, that's it. Yeah. There's all sorts of weird mechanics. Like if you push a solid object that you can't pick up against a wall, you know, like normally in a 2D platformer, you wouldn't be able to get in between the wall and that object. So it would be stuck there. But they, they programmed a mechanic where Yumitaro can keep walking through the object he'll like slowly phase through it mm-hmm. and once yumitaro gets nestled up against the wall the object will realize that like you're occupying its space and it'll push out in the opposite direction to move away from the wall oh interesting yeah it's so weird like this isn't a puzzle game where you push objects around <laughs> you know like yeah. but th- they went out of their way to program all of these insane little details and it's just it's so cool so getting back on track here the next track is innocent this is the music to the opening area of stage six So it's interesting because like in the, the videos I've seen of this because I actually haven't gotten to this stage, it's pretty serene environment and kind of really like kind of nice, you know? Yeah, it has a really cool like peaceful aesthetic to it. And uh, the only sprites here, they can hurt you if you like bump into them by accident, but they're not really enemies. It's basically a guy playing with his dog, you know, except it's, it doesn't look like a guy and it doesn't look like a dog because they're weird, you know, Sunsoft characters. Mm-hmm. Um but the, the AI for them is really interesting. The guy doesn't want to be bothered by you. So, like, as you walk closer to him, he just kind of keeps backing away from you. Um, but the dog gets really excited with your star. He'll chase it like a ball. And if you... So you can, like, throw that to have the dog go chase after it. Uh, but if you're just holding onto the star, the dog wags its tail. He's so excited waiting for you to throw the ball. Um, <laughs> and it's just, again, it's just kind of like, this is stuff you'd expect from, like, a modern indie game, not a game from mm-hmm. the early 90s. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so cool. Uh, so next up is uh, Cadbury. This is the second theme of Stage 6. 
the music abruptly begins uh, when you're ambushed by a mini-boss here. So this is another de- uh, track without a demo, and uh, kind of also worth mentioning. There's actually two, ver- technically two versions of this track in game. There's the first version, which you just heard, and then there's another version if you die and reload the area, which is exactly the same thing, only it has a snare drum introduction. So if you defeat the stage six boss without having met the requirements to reach the final ending, you arrive at the bad or I guess sad ending. Uh, Yumitara rides a stork back to the levels in reverse order like he's returning home, only he hasn't rescued his owner and he's left thinking of her. This track is called Siesta, perhaps because the bad dream hasn't ended. cool things in the arrangements of this track it uses the triangle wave for melody which is always nice to hear and it uses it well which is also nice to mm-hmm. hear um, but it also pairs the triangle with a couple of expansion channels you can total three voices to comprise the melody one of the five b channels plays in unison with the triangle but on an octave lower <clears throat> the other five b channel plays in the same octave as the triangle but is delayed to create echo so it's kind of like i guess the workaround here is almost like Triangle Echo, which you can't technically do on this, uh, uh, you know, configuration, mm-hmm. but, you know, trying to emulate that kind of feeling. So let's listen to the triangle by itself. And then again, with each expansion channel added on one by one. Like how there's some intonation issues in there, so it's kind of like sour sounding, but you know that adds some in, depth, in a good depth. way, like in yeah. a good way, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And something else I really like in this track is the use of periodic noise. It's only used once for just a brief moment in the entire track, 
uh, coming in at the end of the first eight measures. There's that high-pitched ding sort of sound you can hear uh, near the end of the drum fill. And I decided to check the original demo because you may recall that in the Just Friends track, there was periodic noise used to create a triangle-like sound, but that didn't show up in the demo. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, but I'm pleased to report this time, the periodic noise was used to fill the role of a unique percussive sound in the demo. In this case, it was a uh, lone tambourine hit. We would be remiss not to mention that the CD with all the demo tracks also has a couple recent covers and arrangements with live saxophone performances by Kageyama himself. Siesta is one of the two tracks he picked to cover because he really liked it and wanted to learn it, uh, which is kind of a noble way of thinking about this kind of stuff. Um, So here's an excerpt from that. Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, He didn't actually go on to compose too many more video game soundtracks. He wound up leaving the music industry and became a professional uh, photographer. Um, In some interviews, he sort of cited some frustrations. Like, he loves music. He's a huge fan of music. Um, But, you know, sort of experiencing, like, writer's block and some stuff like that, he just felt sort of more like um, he'd rather be a fan of music in a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's a great saxophone player, though. He's really, really good. Yeah, he's good. I mean, he's very good. I mean, and he has a really good teacher too. Um, you know, the, uh, it's interesting because like we've been talking about him, but you know, I've I'm actually personal friends with uh, Masashi Kageyama, and I've met him a couple different times in Japan. Uh, and we went to with uh, Muhammad from Brave Wave and some other people. We went to a jazz club, and he just like sitting there and watching him watch jazz and understand. It's like that's you know that's how he feels about things, and that's like music really is something that is really personal to him. So whether it's composing it or listening to it or something, you know, that's he just wants to be around it. I think, and I think that that's what kind of drives him to do these like you know these kinds of things. And you know, the composition thing was something he took his hand at, but he's still very much involved with a lot of music things. Whether it's taking photographs for albums and things like that, you know, he's still involved in the whole music scene in Tokyo at this time. That's great. So, if you somehow manage to beat stage six with collecting all of the secret treasures, some of them are, again, really hard to get, uh, and not Mm -hmm. using any continues, you'll move on to the secret final stage, stage seven. This is called Sophia Take Two, and this is one of my personal favorite tracks in the game. Let's give it a listen.
there's a lot of things in this track I really like. Uh, it starts off with the triangle wave melody, which is very pretty sounding, and it uses two of the 5B channels for a square wave bass line. Um, this isn't the first time we've heard some square wave bass in the soundtrack, but it's not very common throughout, and you know, it's not very common in NES music in general since you usually use the triangle for bass lines. Two voices are working together to make the square wave bass line. They're playing the same part, just slightly detuned from each other to add some depth to the sound, which is actually kind of a really smart thing to do. Here's an example of just one of the bass line voices by itself, and then again with the other voice added back on. I'm also a big fan of the part towards the end where the triangle, combined with one of the 5B voices, is playing a melody. And then the two pulse wave channels from the 2A03 uh, kick in on top and like sort of they try to steal the spotlight. Uh, it's sort of like these dueling melodies and it, it's a really nice touch. I love that part. The next track is called Evidence of My Life. It is the first half of the final boss's theme. So we haven't really said anything about it yet, but Gimmick actually has an in-game sound test. So all these track titles we've mentioned so far are the official titles that can be found in the sound test, aside from this one, which is found on these various CD releases. This is because the sound test simply missed this track for whatever reason, uh, and the sound test also includes another unused track that isn't found uh, otherwise in-game, so it seems like they kind of got that backwards in a way. Uh, but we'll talk more about that unused track just a little bit later. Next up is Long Tomorrow. This is the second part of the final boss. This is where the, he's decloaked, I guess spoilers, he looks like some kind of evil Luke Skywalker, which is completely out of left field because it's like all of the other bosses and mini bosses are uh, toys that you see in the opening cutscene. And then here's uh, basically Luke Skywalker shows up.
you know, we've gotten through this whole episode without even mentioning kind of, I guess, the elephant in the room here. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So we haven't even talked about Sunsoft bass somehow. Um, and it's a very prominent feature of the gimmick soundtrack. One of the defining characteristics, I'd even say. Uh, we talked about it in the past in our Sunsoft episode, but we should give it a quick review anyway. Yeah, and actually we could even provide some more detail that we didn't mention before as well. Uh, so using the sample channel melodically on the NES is fairly rare. Quite rare, actually. Uh, it was very mm-hmm. difficult to work with, with heavy restrictions on how many pitches it offers when playing back a sample at one of 16 pre- predetermined rates, right? Like, so you don't have a whole chromatic scale available. Sunsoft is recognized for working around this awkward restriction and releasing a batch of games that make heavy use of bass samples. Yeah, it was pretty much all of their Famicom and NES titles after Fester's Quest, right? Yep, yeah, everything from Fester's Quest on, uh, not including Batman. That, that came out right after Fester's Quest. That's the only exception. Um, so, like I said, because of the weird gaps it, it, that it has um, and, you know, lacking that chromatic scale, you had to use a bunch of different starting samples to cover a chromatic scale. So, like, in other words, covering a whole chromatic scale or a couple, you know, over a couple octaves means transposing a bunch of different starting pitches. Like, it's kind of like a cobweb of, of, of yeah. samples and, and, and repitching. It's a mess. It can get pretty complicated, yeah. Yeah. Something I wasn't aware of until recently, though, I somehow completely missed this, even having listened to the gimmick soundtrack, like, countless times, is that it actually uses a couple different bass sample sets. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, if you listen to Fester's Quest, that has a different sounding bass sample than the rest of the games that came out afterwards. Or so, you know, that's mostly the case, but it's a little wrong there. So let's listen to a quick example from Fester's Quest, followed by Journey to Silius. So those are two different samples, but where I was mistaken was in assuming that everything after Journey to Silius used uh, just what that used. Um, gimmick, unsurprisingly, is the major exception here, and that it dedicates the space to use both the Fester's Quest and Journey to Silius base sample sets. Uh, the rest of the games just stick to one. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, here's a demonstration that David Vienne sent to us. Uh, we'll link to it in the comments. He's actually mapped these samples to a synth he's working on, and so he has a live video of him tapping away on a keyboard, demonstrating all of the gimmick bass samples, uh, and it's, it's really cool. So to recap, and this is even, you know what Sunsoft Bass actually is, is it's three different sample sets. There's the Fester's Quest sample set, there's a Journey to Cilia sample set, which is used for most of the rest of them, and then there's a third one that we haven't mentioned, and that's the Dodge Danpei sample set. Yes. And David Vian clarified for us that the gimmick game engine swaps an 8kb ROM bank to be able to make use of that Journey to Cilius base sample, and three 8kb ROM banks uh, to make use for that Fester's Quest uh, slap base sample. So, so in less technical terms, gimmick went really basically all out with their base samples, kind of like, a, you know, in some weird way. I imagine that with the NES getting older, you know, they're, they're thinking this is the last hurrah, you know, mm-hmm. Let, let's pull out all the stops. And this, you know, this is above and beyond what anyone would expect for a normal sample channel usage for any any NES game. And this is probably the greatest use of it. It might be one of the greatest uses of it, actually. 
Yeah, and that, I mean, the, like, there's also percussive samples in there as well, too. Like, we see, like, mm-hmm. the bongos and the, the really great snare sound. Um, yeah. It's super impressive. And thanks to our friend Stefan, uh, we also recently learned the Sunsoft bass sample, or at least, you know, one of these aforementioned sample sets, came from, or was prepared by, an Akai S700 sampler. Uh, if the Sunsoft bass was a preset of some kind on that device, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, but it, we're sort of like a step closer to understanding the origin of the Sunsoft bass. That was like a, a huge goal of, of ours even. We talk about like, oh, the origin of Sunsoft bass. It's like something on shitpost.nsf as well. Yeah. Um, but we're getting closer to figuring it out. So it's pretty cool. It's great. Yeah. So moving on, <clears throat> we're going to arrive at the last song that's in game. I notice I say last song in game. This is the good ending where Yumitaro reunites with the owner and the mechanism causing the weird dreamland is shattered. The game then rests on a, a view of flickering city lights at night while the credits roll. It's called Good Night Take Two. I, I really, really love that track. Um, and it, I can't stress enough just how much I, every time I sit down to beat the game, which is not very frequently, um, but I have I have gotten the good ending a, a good number of times. And uh, it's just so cool. There's, you have that abrupt ending of that track and the game just stays frozen on, you know, it says the end, I believe, and it has that view of the city lights just sitting there. So you're just watching the TV screen in silence, and it's just a look at, like, the city night, and uh, that's it. Um, and uh, the way that track builds up and culminates with those those great, very staccato note note rhythms towards the end of the track, like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, like those little fast notes. Like it's, it's a really great song. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's great. And so, as I said, kind of like ominously, you know, the last song in the game, but there's one more track, actually, and that's Strange Memories of Death. We know the official title because it shows up in the sound test, but otherwise it's actually unused, which is kind of strange because I think it's pretty much everyone's favorite track from this game. Like, you know, if you asked anyone, that's probably the one people remember. <clears throat> that probably Happy Birthday is mentioned off of that. I mean, there's, you can't go wrong with any of them, honestly, mm-hmm. but... 
it's a really great track, and it is honestly one of my probably top 10 songs on the NES. I'd have to say that. Um, so let's give it a listen. So I remember some older NSFs floating around out there um, included this as track one, I believe, on the NSF, maybe track two. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. So like a lot of people who were looking up the soundtrack who weren't familiar with it would find this track really quickly. And uh, I know when I first heard the soundtrack, it, it took a, l- a little while for me to really sort of like fall in love with the rest of the soundtrack. But this was the one track that jumped out uh, at me. And it's just amazing because yeah. it's, it's not actually used in gameplay anywhere. And I, I couldn't find the source on this, but I seem to recall hearing or reading somewhere that um, Kageyama couldn't recall where it might have belonged in game. Um, mm-hmm. There's no. This is the last. This is the fourth track that we mentioned before that doesn't have an original demo demo for it that can be found on that CD. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's just weird. It has such an interesting title, "Strange Memories of Death." So that's like very like evocative, and I, I just would re- really love to know uh, what it was used for. So, we interrupt this podcast to bring you some new information. We found out something that we had to basically stop the entire episode and re-record and put in right here. So, Patrick, what was it? Um, so we actually learned uh, the origin of Strange Memories of Death and where it was supposed to be in game. And as far as awesome. we know, yeah, this is completely new information that's not available publicly until uh, right now, I suppose. Um, and this is a quote that comes directly from the director of the game, Tomomi Sakai, and this is courtesy of our friend Stefan from VG Arc. Uh, and he says, Strange Memories of Death was originally the song for the final stage, and the stage was meant to be mechanical, electrical, and the most difficult stage. However, I changed my mind and made the final stage as one without enemies. I wanted to create a world rather than making just a video game. We prepared a new song for the final stage, so I put the song we did not use into the sound test. And that explains Strange Memories of Death. I, uh, the, his words of like wanting to create a world, uh, like, you know, is, is so profound in its own particular way. Yeah. It's pretty it, cool. It definitely, it, throughout the episode, we pointed out a lot of cool details, but I don't think we mentioned that in the true final stage, you know, when you're on your way to the good ending, there's, a, there's one part of the level where there's an insect just randomly climbing around on the, on the wall. And it's the only time it appears in the entire game. And it's not like a, I mean, it might be done, it's probably done using a sprite graphic, but it's not a traditional sprite. Like you're picturing like an actual insect, like a character. It's like, no, it's Mm -hmm. like one pixel 
uh, of black, like moving along the wall. <laughs> and it's actually, it's not a preset animation. It's, it's um, randomized to move. So every time you, you enter the level, like it, it moves a little bit differently. So um, that's something you find in the final level. And he, hearing the director say now that he wanted to create a world, uh, you know, that definitely is reflected in the design. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. That it, it, There's so much love that was put into this. It's it's crazy. Okay, now back to the episode. <clears throat> so that that's that's pretty much everything. We've listened to every single track here. And honestly, like, again, we kind of talked about a little bit as we were going through, but it is kind of like, you know, being how late it was released in Nintendo's life, 1992 and everything, I guess the last hurrah of these chips and kind of using these things. And it's interesting because, like, it, it's the culmination of all of Sunsoft's good work. And basically, you know, that great – in the Sunsoft episode, we talk about how they had an amazing team of just people who really gelled together and were trying to push the limits of the sound. Mm-hmm. And this is like the most that they could possibly push it in a lot of ways. It uses every single thing that they possibly could. And it's like, you know, a work of passion by four guys who just put this game together. But it's one of those games that's like it's rare and actually worth buying, if that makes any sense, and playing. There's a lot of rare games that are just mm-hmm. rare. You know, but it's rare and good. That's why it's probably so expensive. This is perhaps the most noteworthy uh, cult classic of the Famicom. I'd say so. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so if you're interested in seeing this game, if you haven't played it before and you're afraid you might bounce off from the, you know, the old 2D platformer uh, difficulty that it has, I highly recommend looking up Frank Trafaldi's uh, annotated playthrough on YouTube. Um, You should watch it on uh, desktop computer not mobile because it does use those uh older youtube a- annotations which won't display on mobile um but he basically just does like a, a a playthrough of the game and points out a lot of the details a lot of the cool stuff in the game uh and i know like a lot of people have learned from his videos about the game and like kind of what makes it so cool um so we'll link to that in the comments it's it's a great watch and uh it, we had a blast talking about this we knew we were going to do this episode since we started the podcast of course yeah um not only because we're covering all the sound expansions but just because you know we were going to talk about gimmick regardless we love this soundtrack and uh we hope that if this was new to you that you enjoyed uh hearing it So what's up? Um, well, it's cool actually. I'm working on this one thing uh, right now that I can't uh, actually talk about at the moment. Not at liberty to say. Ooh. Um, <laughs> but it, it's it's right. You know, it's 100% relevant to what we do on the podcast. Uh, I'm preparing a video about it that'll be on our YouTube channel eventually. Um, so just stay tuned. You know, I'll be writing about it on Twitter. We'll of course mention it in a future episode once it's finally live. Um, but it's cool. I'm doing some sound design uh, research, uh, and uh, you know, I can't wait to re- talk about what I'm writing about. Yeah, it's actually really cool. Um, it's gonna be it's gonna be really exciting. <laughs> I, I I can't say anything either, but yeah, it's gonna be great. Um, I guess I've been kind of working on one of the things I'm trying to do this year is write more music because I haven't written a lot of music this year. So I'm trying to make sure that I try to at least write, whether it's commercially or for my own purposes, at least 100 tracks this year, which is... Yeah. I'm nuts, yeah. Yeah. And especially with all the stuff that I have going on, but I'm doing <clears throat> I've started to release some of those tracks. I think I just released the first one uh 
which I just called one of 100 because it's the first track. But I have about, you know, it's what, March, mid-March here. I probably have about 24 tracks. So I'm tracking okay, not great. Um, actually, no, yeah, it's one quarter. The quarter's almost up, so they're 24. But it's <clears throat> just been really challenging to get back into writing. And, you know, the idea of, like, we do these episodes and we work on these things. It's like, you know, it's... We, we cover so many different sound tips that I get almost scatterbrained because like mm-hmm. there's so many things that's like, you know, I want to write for the X68K. Now I want to write for the MSX because this is so cool. Like, why can't I write for the Super Nintendo? Someone write me a tracker. You know, that kind of stuff. The things we worry about every single day, really. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, so it, it, it kind of scatters things here, but I'm really trying to go back to basics and stuff. So, I mean, that's what I've been kind of doing in the background of all this and also like, you know, repairing MSX computers as best as I can. Repairing in quotes. I think I'm breaking more of them That's than repairing awesome. them. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you want to listen to Steve's one of 100 track, you should probably be able to find it. I think I uh, like re-blogged it, or I don't even know what you call it on SoundCloud. Like reposted it. Oh um, yeah, you did. Oh thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So reposted it. it. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be so it'll, it'll show up on our list of like uh, stuff. <laughs> um, so uh, comments. I think we had some comments from our most recent episode on uh, recording from hardware. Yeah. So, uh, we have a comment here from I'm a Trackman, who was responding about uh, the pin uh, connector design for the power pack. So he says, Correction, using NES cart pin 54 isn't just an arbitrary choice that Bunny Boy made for the power pack. Keep in mind that while the NES never got expansion audio in the West, Western regions did get MMC5 carts. Because the MMC5 also has expansion audio output, Every single NES EX ROM board has a full expansion audio path and an incomplete mixing circuit from MMC pins 1, 99, and 100 um, to cart pin 54. This is also where the 47k resistor value comes from, as it's likely the resistor, resistor value necessary to get the MMC 5 channels balanced with the 2A03 channels. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Like, I, I would expect there to be a reason for it, but of course, like at that level of detail, you know, that sort of stuff goes way over my head, and I'm usually not privy to that that kind of information. So, it's worth very thankful to have people like Trackman uh, who are able to help dish out those kind of details. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk. But my the comment that I want to talk about here is let's talk about these cables and colors. Um, you know, we were talking about, you know, the general idea that, you know, these RCA cables are different colors and the NES for some reason has a red and yellow jack. I have an MSX over here that has orange jacks or, or black and white jacks, like that kind of thing. So a uh, friend of the show, uh, Curriculum Crasher, says... <clears throat> The 1986, 1988, and 1990 manuals for the North American NES control deck all indicate that an AV cable, red and yellow, was provided along with the RF connector. From photos, it does not appear that the cable has any marking to distinguish it from a generic a generic AV cable. So they did that, and it actually had those two colors. So, I mean, I guess that was just their choice. Like, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I, it's just so weird to me that, like... you know that there was like these kinds that they just picked those colors like i don't like i don't know like i I really wish if like there was a defining point where with these stupid connectors or whatever there is like someone who said no this is the way we're gonna do it but it really just looks like eh, it doesn't matter (laughs) you know and like like and anyone did whatever they wanted to do um and that's kind of interesting like the wild west like especially when we're talking about msx computers like you know, this was supposed to be a standard, so why are things different colors? I don't know. Right. <laughs> you know, the, the OCD in me is, like, 
totally bothered by the different colors. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I want to bring up another comment from Trackman, actually. Uh, in the episode, we mentioned using uh, GBS2GB, a software that'll turn mm-hmm. a GBS rip into the Game Boy ROM format, because uh, you need to do that mm-hmm. to be able to actually play uh, ripped GBS soundtracks off of hardware, convert it to GB first. Um, mm-hmm. He says, I may be alone in having some soundtracks that don't convert properly with GBS to GB. Um, so that's actually something that would be great to have more feedback from from other people in the community. Uh, I, yeah. did, I did a bunch of soundtrack rips uh, back in the day before I lost my freaking Game Boy in a move. Uh, I don't know how that's possible because it's not usually the type of thing that would happen to me. Um mm-hmm. So it's very frustrating. But yeah, I, I, I remember back then, I didn't run into any issues converting soundtracks, but I really only ever maybe checked a couple dozen conversions at most. Uh, so there's always the chance I got lucky and, and didn't, you know, maybe if I tried converting the same things that gave Trackman a problem, it would have given me a problem too. So um, yeah, yeah. so uh, if anyone else is an avid uh, GBS to GB user, uh, please let us know uh, what kinds of soundtracks, uh, you know, you find issues with. Another comment I found here interesting, again from Curriculum Crasher, is actually a really interesting thing we did not talk about. So with Famicoms and twin Famicoms, they have built-in microphones into the controller. So if we're trying to get optimal sound, we don't want those microphones there because those microphones will pick up voices and stuff like that. They will actually pick up sound because they're always on. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I completely forgot about this. And it's funny because Trackman did the entire episode. I don't know if anyone, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but Trackman did the entire MSX episode off his Famicom microphone. I just, I just want to point that yeah, out because it's like the funniest thing ever. <laughs> we, I, we somehow failed to mention that. If you go back and listen to our MSX episode, Trackman's voice is recorded through the Famicom controller. <laughs> so if we're trying to optimize sound, though, we don't want something picking up voice, right? So Curriculum Crasher writes, Another sound issue with Famicom is the second controller microphone. If the, audio strip, if the volume strip is dirty, you can create a horrible hum that can drown out the main audio. And then Plogue uh, actually writes back in and says, it's the first thing that they remove. So yeah. um, it's funny because like my performance Famicom has the second controller removed because it will just like hum and create this terrible noise. It is ah. like total feedback. It's horrible. But that is a very good point. If, if there is a built-in microphone to a controller, you'd want to remove it to, to you know read uh, like get rid of some of the variables when you're recording yeah no, I didn't even they, think about that yeah I'm glad they brought that up because that's actually a very major consideration when we're talking about optimal recording setups that's that's a must for recording from the Famicom absolutely yep absolutely all right so name that game uh... <laughs> 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 all right let's listen to the track from our last episode So, Patrick, did anyone get it? Uh, yes, they did. Uh, it was correctly guessed by Ryan L. Uh, I'll just read their response here. This episode's Name That Game is a track from Kujaku O2, or Peacock King 2, on the Famicom, uh, based on the manga Spirit Warrior. If you must know how I guessed that, I played countless NSFs until I found the one uh, this song is from, That's How Dedicated I Am. 
which that's some dedication yeah i was gonna say like man like i almost don't believe you yeah (laughs) i want to i want to say that you actually did know the track in advance and immediately recognized it uh no actually i mean that's really cool that's uh that's impressive dedication i feel like even with the level of knowledge that i have uh with famicom and nes music and that i'm I'm pretty good at identifying composers and companies a fair amount Mm -hmm. of the time if i heard a track i didn't recognize and I wasn't absolutely sure, like, oh, that's Tim Fallon, or, you know, oh, that's definitely a Capcom set. Like, I would have a hard time digging through the whole library uh, and, like, and, like, knowing, like, where, you know, I might have some guesses where I could hunt things down, but, like, I would give up. I wouldn't be able to dig through yeah. the library like that. So if, he, if that's actually how you found that track, that's really impressive, uh, and that's really yeah. cool. So um, Yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you were re- rewarded uh, by actually being able to find the track. So that's really cool. All right. Well, that's great. So I guess that means we have another one, you know? (laughs) Yep. Uh, See if you can name that game. So I guess we're kind of at the end of the episode here. Uh, do you have a song of the week picked out? Uh, yes. So I used to play drums for uh, Cheap Dinosaurs, and we had a side project of video game covers called Auto Scroll. And one of the tracks that we covered, uh, you can find it on Bandcamp, is a cover of Just Friends from Gimmick, the uh, Secret Era music. And I believe uh, Cheap Dinosaurs now also has a cover of uh, Strange Memories of Death in their lineup mm-hmm. um so like if you see them live uh that that might be in the mix but i don't believe it's recorded or published anywhere yet so nonetheless uh it, i had a lot of fun doing this cover we it's a cover with live instrumentation but there's also a game boy backing track so the, it's, the music is partially covered uh using another set of uh, chiptune sounds so this is our cover of just friends and you've been listening to retro game audio <laughs> 